Section 5 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. July 3rd. The house is rented. As it rained this morning, the secretary came alone and seemed very well satisfied. But at the last moment my conscience began to worry me, and perhaps, too, for none of our motives are unmixed, I was afraid he suspected something. He made some observation about the rent being low for a property of that size, and glanced at me as he said it, so I plunged. I think I'd better be honest with you, even if it costs me money, I said. The house is cheap because it, well, it isn't an easy house to rent. Too lonely, eh? Partly that and partly because a portion of the house is very old, and there have been some stories about it circulating in the neighborhood for years. Ghost stories? You can call them that. He seemed to be amused rather than alarmed. He grinned broadly and took out a cigarette. Ghosts won't bother me any, he said rather boastfully. What kind of a ghost? I don't believe anyone claims to have seen anything. The reports are mostly of raps and various noises. He seemed to take a peculiar, almost a furtive enjoyment out of my statement. My confession, rather. Hot dog, he said. Well, raps won't bother me, and Mr. Bethel's got a deaf ear. He can turn that up at night if they worry him. So the house is rented, unless something unexpected turns up, and I have done my part. But I confess to an extreme distaste for the secretary, and Edith may find herself with a problem on her hands. For just before we left, he spied her on the float and gave her a careful inspection. That looks pretty good to me, he said. And although his gesture embraced the waterfront, his eyes were on her. I have arranged with Annie Cochran, following Gordon's query about a servant, to resume her old position at the main house. She refuses to remain after dark, but I presume this will be satisfactory. She will also commence tomorrow to get the house in readiness. With that strange swiftness with which news travels in the country, already the word has gone out that the place is rented, and I lay to that our sudden popularity this afternoon. The first to arrive was Dr. Hayward, as nervous and jerky as ever, fiddling with his collar, and one for a moment excluded from the talk, gnawing abstractedly at his finger ends. Nothing escapes the man. I sometimes feel that he goes about on his rounds, collecting gossip as assiduously as he disperses the medicines he puts up in his small dispensary, and that his mind is similarly stocked with it, put up neatly on shelves and in order, so that he can conveniently put his hand on it. He addressed himself mostly to Jane. There is a certain type of medical man who wins his way into families by the favor of women, and is more at ease with them than with its menfolk, and only beat a circuitous route to the subject uppermost in his mind, which clearly was that an elderly invalid had taken twin hollows, and would probably require a physician. In the course of this roundabout talk, however, I came finally to the conclusion that, like the detective, he was watching me. And as it happened with Greeno, I became absurdly self-conscious. The very knowledge that, the moment I looked away, his eyes slid to me and there remained, made me awkward. As a result, I upset my teacup, and while Jane was hurrying for a cloth to repair the damage, she said, Pretty nervous, aren't you? Not particularly, but I happen to specialize in upsetting teacups. How are you sleeping? Like a top, I assured him with a certain truculence, I dare say, but he was fairly thick-skinned. He passed it over by giving his collar a twitch. Dream any? he inquired. By heaven, the fellow was not only watching me, he was analyzing me. And with that peculiar perverse humor which, I feel tonight, may get me into trouble yet, I answered... I who seldom dream, and then the benign dreams of an uneventful life and an easy conscience, I answered, horribly. He leaned back and took to biting a finger, staring at me over it. What do you mean by horribly? he inquired. But some gleam of reason came to me then, and I laughed. Sorry, Hayward, I said, I couldn't resist it. I never dream. At least nothing I can remember. But you were being so professional. Jane's return prevented the apology which was on his lips, and he went back to the local gossip. Once I mentioned the matter of the sheep, but he rather dexterously sidestepped it, and finally brought the talk around to the renting of the house but I am confident that Greeno has been to him about me, and has asked him to give him an opinion on my mental balance. I was on guard after that, determined to exhibit myself in my most rational manner. But there is something upsetting in the mere thought that one's sanity is being brought into question. 
One's usually automatic acts become self-conscious ones, and tonight I could laugh, if I were not somewhat disturbed by it, at the care with which I placed my cigarette on the saucer of my teacup and flung the silver spoon into the grate, at the sudden comprehension of what I had done, and my wild leap to recover the spoon, and at Hayward's intent expression as I turned from the fireplace with the spoon in my hand, and muttered something about being the original man who put his umbrella to bed and stood himself in the corner. He was too absorbed to smile. He left finally when the Livingstones arrived. You must take care of this fine husband of yours, Mrs. Porter, he said, holding her hand in the paternal fashion of his type. He's probably been overdoing it a bit, the result of which is that Jane herself has taken to watching me quietly over her tapestry, and that she suggested this evening that I take a course of bromide for my nerves. Irritated at Hayward as I was, and annoyed at myself, I saw him to his car, and asked him the question which has been in the back of my mind ever since I found the letter in the library desk. By the way, I said, you knew my Uncle Horace pretty well, better than I did in recent years. Did he have many friends, I mean, locally? He straightened his tie with a jerk. He had no intimates at all, so far as I know. I knew him as well as anybody. He rather liked Mrs. Livingston, but he had no use for Livingston himself. Well, I'll change the question. Do you know of any quarrel he had had shortly before he died? That's easier. He quarreled with a good many people. I imagine you know that as well as I do. He never mentioned to you that he had had a definite difference of opinion with anyone. Looking back tonight over that conversation, I am inclined to think that he had an answer for that question, and that he almost gave it, but he changed his mind. The purpose of his visit must have come to him, Greeno's story about that idiotic circle and my own lame explanation of it, and all the outrageous mess in which I had involved myself. I'd like to know why you ask me that, he said instead. He had never talked to you about calling on the police in some emergency? Never. I see what you're driving at, Porter, he added. I admit I had some thought of that myself at the time, but the autopsy showed the cause of death all right. He wasn't murdered. The blow on the head had nothing to do with it, then? He glanced at me quickly. If it was a blow, he said, it didn't help matters any, of course, but I prefer to think that the head injury was received as he fell. He hesitated. Don't you? Naturally, I agreed. But there was a significance in that pause of his, followed by, don't you, which has stayed with me ever since. It was almost as though, in view of Greeno's visit to him and my own questions, I had been somehow responsible for the poor old boy's death and was seeking reassurance. One o'clock a.m. I am not able to sleep, and so, recipient of all my repressions, I come to you. I have repeated my little formula over and over as some people count sheep, Milton and Dryden and Pope, Milton and Dryden and Pope, but without result. Yet I have seen whole classrooms succumb to the soporific effect of that or some similar phrase in the early hours of a bright morning. I have even been out in dressing gown and slippers and wandered away down the main road where I was surprised by a countryman with a truckload of produce and probably recognized. If any more sheep are killed tonight, what am I to think about this red lamp business? Into every situation it insistently intrudes itself. It was burning when old Horace died. I had turned it on in the closed and shuttered den the day I received that curious message about the letter. Jane lets it to develop the pictures of the house for Larkin, and Niley's sheep are killed. What is more, Jane sees a face, either outside the window or behind her in the pantry. From the moment of its entrance into the house, after eighteen years of quiet, the old stories of hauntings are revived, raps are heard, footsteps wander about, and furniture appears to move. Is Green all right, and am I ready for the psychopathic ward of some hospital? Is this accumulation of evidence actual, or have I imagined it? And yet I am sane enough, apparently. I listen, and I hear the familiar sounds of nighttime here. Jock moving about uneasily in Jane's bedroom next to mine. The rhythmic creaking of the runway to the float, as the wash of the tide swings it to and fro on its rollers. I hear no voices whispering. Yet Mrs. Livingston was most explicit this afternoon. She clearly has no nerves, being complacent with the complacence of fat rapidly gained in middle age, and no imagination, or she would have taken lemon in her tea and no sugar. But she sat there, ignoring little Livingston's attempts to change the subject, and soberly warned me against renting the house. Jane's face was a study. So far I had been able to keep from her much of the local gossip about the house, and all of the talk about the red lamp, but now she heard it all, garnished and embellished, and I caught her eyes fixed on me piteously. "'Is it too late, William?' she asked. "'Must we rent it now?' "'It's all signed, sealed, and delivered, my dear,' I said. "'But all is not lost.' 
Tomorrow morning I shall take my little hatchet and smash that lamp to kingdom come. Mrs. Livingston took a slice of cake. I'm sure you have my permission, she said. And as I gave it to your Uncle Horace, I dare say I have a right to say so. Perhaps you would like to have it back? God forbid, she said quickly. Oh, for heaven's sake, Livingston put in irritably. Let's talk about something else. Mrs. Porter, will you show me your garden? I had a feeling that his wife had wanted just this, perhaps had given him some secret signal, for she settled back the moment they had gone and, so to speak, opened fire. You're not a spiritist, Mr. Porter? I am a cynic, I am a carrion crow, I quoted, but I saw the words had no meaning for her. She may have felt some underlying amusement in them, however, for she stiffened somewhat and rather abruptly changed her point of attack. I have often wondered, she said slowly, whether you have ever considered your uncle's death as unusual. You mean that you do? Personally, she said, looking directly at me, I think he was frightened to death. She hesitated. She gave me the impression of venturing on ground which was unpleasant to her. Either that or... She abandoned that and began again hurriedly. My husband dislikes the subject, she said. But I will tell you why I believe what I do and you can see what you can make of it. You remember that Mrs. Porter was not well when you both came out, the day he was found dead and toward evening you took her home? Well, Andy Cochran would not stay alone that night and I stayed with her. It was very... curious. Just what do you mean by curious? That there was somebody in the house that night, or something. And you don't believe it was somebody? I don't know what I believe, she said rather breathlessly. I suppose, since you claim to be a cynic, you will laugh, but I have to tell you just the same. Stripping her narrative to the skeleton, she had been skeptical before, but that night the house had been strangely uncanny. They had sat in the kitchen with all the lights on, and at two o'clock in the morning she distinctly heard somebody walking in the hall overhead on the second floor. Doors seemed to open and shut, and finally, on a crash from somewhere in the dining room, like a doubled fist striking the table, Andy Cochran had bolted outside and stayed there. At dawn she came back, and said she had distinctly seen a ball of light floating in the room over the den, shortly after she went out. And was the red lamp lighted while all this was going on? That's one of the most curious things about it. It was not when I made a round to that floor early in the evening, but it was going at dawn. There is, of course, one thing I can do. I can meet Mr. Bethel when he arrives and lay my cards on the table. It will take all my courage. I know how I should feel if I had taken a house, and at the moment of my arrival a wild-eyed owner came to turn me away on the ground that his house is haunted, or, we will say, subject to inexplicable nocturnal visits. Shall I take Holiday into my confidence? I need a fresh brain on the matter, certainly. Someone who will see that the local connection of the murdered sheep with the red lamp, and so with old Horace's death, is the absurdity it must be. July 4th. A quiet 4th. But in spite of all precautions, more sheep were killed last night, and in fear of my life I have been expecting a visit from Greeno this morning. But perhaps old Morrison, it looked like the Morrison truck, did not recognize me last night. But to make things more unpleasant all around, the fellow this time did not leave his infernal truck mark. One can imagine Greeno straightening from his investigation and deciding that his recent talk with me has put me on my guard. Hey-ho. The neighborhood is in a wild state of alarm. The failure of the detective from town to stop the killings has probably added to the superstitious fears which seem mixed up in it, but the more intelligent farmers have got out their rifles and duck guns, and there will be short shrift for the fellow if he is seen at work. Public opinion appears to be divided between a demon and a dangerous lunatic at large. Otherwise, I have recovered from last night's hysteria. The cleaning of the house for Mr. Bethel begins today, and I have decided to let it go on. If on hearing my story he decides not to stay, no harm will be done. If he remains, it is in order for him. Jane said at breakfast, Are you letting him come, William? I shall tell him all I know, my dear. After that, it is up to him. But is it? Suppose something happens to him. What on earth could happen? I inquired irritably. He doesn't need to light that silly lamp. Anyhow, I'm going to destroy it. And as for the other matter, the sheep, the fellow is sticking to sheep, thank God. But I am not so certain just now as to destroying the lamp. This is the result of a conversation with Annie Cochran, as I admitted her, armed with broom and pail, to the house this morning. She represents, I imagine, the lowest grade of local intelligence, and I dare say she was responsible for much of the superstitious fear of the lamp, but after all, her attitude represents that of a part of the community. 
and if I destroy the lamp I shall undoubtedly be held responsible for any local tragedies for the next lifetime or two. In a word, any Crockler not only believes that the lamp houses a demon, she believes that to smash the lamp will liberate that demon in perpetuity. Incredible? Yet who am I to laugh at this, who went a running to Lear with a double exposure photograph, and have been secretly annoyed that little petting girl has never asked me to one of his table-tipping seances? or who have, in deference to Annie Cochran and her kind, most carefully locked away the red lamp in an attic closet of the other house, there to contain this devil unreleased, or who am at this moment somewhat oppressed by a so-called spirit message I have just received, forwarded to me by Cameron's secretary. It is a difference of degree, not of kind. This is my first letter from the spirit world, and it comes via Salem, Ohio. I have had a curious message or two, witnessed the unknown correspondent who for several years at intervals sent me a playing card in an envelope, so that it was nothing unusual for me to receive the deuce of spades with my bacon and eggs, or the knave of diamonds for tea. But this one stands in a class by itself. It has, in Mr. Cameron's absence, been forwarded to me by his secretary. My dear Mr. Porter, in Mr. Cameron's absence on his vacation I am forwarding the enclosed message at the request of the writer, who appears to have considerable faith in our ability to locate the person for whom it is intended. We have had no previous correspondence with the young lady, at least I can find none in our files. But I know you will not mind my saying, in Mr. Cameron's absence, that he has always regarded these Ouija board communications as purely subconscious in origin, in other words, as unconscious fraud. The enclosed note is very long and fully detailed. Even the arrangement of the furniture in the room is described, and the lighting of it. How she came to omit her red lamp I cannot tell, I have somehow grown to expect one. But no amount of light handling of the matter on my part can alter the fact that I am not as comfortable about the thing as I might be. The damnable accuracy of it is in itself disconcerting. The name is right, even to my initial. I am living in a lodge, which even my own subconscious mind could hardly have anticipated a few days ago, and I am warned of danger on a morning when I feel that danger is, as Edith would say, my middle name. According to the writer, she and the other sitter, who she naively explains was her fiancé, received twice the name William A. Porter. Assured then that they had it accurately, the control spelled out as follows. Advise you and Jane to go elsewhere. Lodge dangerous. It sounds, I admit, like a telegraphic message with one word to spare. One rather looks for the word love, so often added to get full value for one's money. But it is a definite warning for all that. So the lodge is dangerous, and Jane and I advise to go elsewhere. Heaven knows I'd like nothing better. Our love story goes on, and I am as helpless there as in other directions. Edith proffering herself simply and sweetly in a thousand small cockatries and as many unstudied allurements, and young Halliday gravely adoring her and holding back. Today, along with the rest of the summer colony, they made a pilgrimage in the car to the scenes of the various meadow tragedies, ending up with the stone altar, and I suspect matters came very nearly to a head between them, for Edith was very talkative on their return, and Halliday very quiet and a trifle pale. And tonight, sitting on the veranda of the boathouse, while the boy set off Roman candles and skyrockets over the water, Edith asked me how I thought she could earn some money. Earn money, I said? What on earth for? I've never known you to think about money before. Well, I'm thinking about it now, she said briefly, and relapsed into silence, from which she roused in a moment or so to state that money was a pest, and if she were making a world, she'd have none in it. I found my position slightly delicate, but I ventured to suggest that no man worth his salt would care to have his wife support him. She ignored that completely, however, and said she was thinking of writing a book. A book, she said, would bring in a great deal of money, and nobody would need to worry about anything. And you could get it published, Father William, she said. Everybody knows who you are, and you could correct the spelling, couldn't you? That's the only thing that's really worrying me. And I honestly believe the child is trying it. Her light is still going tonight, as I can see under her door. July 5th. The sheriff has offered a thousand dollars reward for the apprehension and conviction of the sheep killer. A notice to that effect is neatly tacked on a post outside our gates, and must rather appeal to Duino's sense of humor, if he has any. I understand Livingston is privately offering another five hundred. 
Mr. Bethel and his secretary arrive tomorrow, and the house is about ready for them, in spite of the fact that Annie Cochran moves about it, unoccupied as it is, like a scared rabbit. I shall see him at once on his arrival. Halliday will finish the float today, and I understand intends then to start on the sloop. He has found a way to address me instead of the formal sir of the first day or two, and now calls me Skipper. He is visibly more cheerful since yesterday. However hopeless the future looks, he must, during that showdown yesterday, as Edith would undoubtedly call it, have been fairly assured of her love for him. Today I overheard a conversation between him and Clara. Well, I must be getting on, he said. It's my wash day. Wash day, is it? She commented skeptically. I'd like to see your clothes after you wash them. Who said anything about clothes, he demanded. It's my dishwashing day. I always do them every Monday morning. I watched him go down the drive, his head virtuously erect, and Jock, who adores him, bidding him a reluctant goodbye. He will not follow him in that direction. The boy wheedles Clara out of food, too, while Jane stands by and smiles. Passing the pantry window yesterday, I saw him stop abruptly and stare at the table inside. I beg your pardon, Clara, he said, but are those custard pies? They are, and you needn't be thinking. Real honest-to-goodness custard pies? That's what the cookbook calls them. Would you mind if I came a little closer, Clara? He inquired. I have heard of them, but it is so long since I have seen one, let alone tasted it. They're too fresh to cut, said Clara, weakening. One could see by inches. But I could come back, he said gently. I could go and sit in my lonely boathouse, surrounded by the cans I live out of, and think about them. And later I could come back, you know. And although he did not come back, a half hour later I saw Clara carrying one down to him, neatly covered with a napkin. Today, for the first time, I have taken him fully into my confidence. I had been halfway debating it, but the matter of the dressing gown decided it. I find that in the original journal I made no note of this incident. The facts are as follows. At Jane's suggestion, I proceeded to the main house to remove such of Uncle Horace's clothing as remained in the closets and so on, to a trunk in the attic. Since the night of her experience in the pantry, she has not entered the house. Armed with a package of moth preventive, I was on my way when I met Halliday, and he returned with me. We worked quietly, for there was something depressing in the emptiness of such garments, and in their mute reminder that sooner or later we must all shed the clothing that we call the flesh. I said something of this, and the boy gave me rather a twisted smile. It can't be so bad, he said. Not worse than things are here sometimes, anyhow. And as Burroughs said, wasn't it Burroughs? The dead do not lie in the grave, lamenting there is no immortality. Then you don't believe in immortality? I don't know what I believe, he replied. I know it isn't any use telling us we're going to be happy in the next world to make up for our being darn miserable in this. It was shortly after this that I located the dressing gown, which poor old Horace was wearing when he was found, and discovered that there were bloodstains on it near the hem. I'm going to ask you something, I said to Halliday. A man dies of heart failure, and as he falls, strikes his head so that it bleeds. He lies there from sometime in the evening until seven o'clock in the morning. There wouldn't be much blood, would there? Hardly any, I should say. And none in this location, I imagine. I showed it to him, and he looked at me curiously. I'm afraid I don't get it, Skipper, he said. You mean he moved afterwards? If you want to know exactly what I mean, I believe the poor old chap was knocked down, that he got up and managed to dispose of something he had in his hand, something he didn't want seen, and after that his heart failed. He picked up the dressing gown and carried it to the window. Tell me about it, he said quietly. As neither one of us knows anything about the heart or what occurs when a fatal seizure attacks it, it is possible Halliday is right. That is, that feeling ill, he got up, crumpled the letter in his hand, turned out the desk light, and then fell. But then he recovered himself and managed to drag himself to his feet again when the full force of the seizure came and he fell once more, not to rise. There was no real reason to believe that he was not alone, he said, nor even that he saw something, as Mrs. Livingston intimates. But the letter I had found in the drawer interests him. He has made a copy of it and taken it home to study. Quote, I appeal to you to consider the enormity of the idea. Your failure to comprehend my own attitude to it, however, makes me believe that you shall be tempted to go on with it. In that case, I shall feel it my duty not only to go to the police, but to warn society in general. 
I realize fully the unpleasantness of my own situation, even if you are consistent, it's danger, but... Close quote. But what? said Halliday. But I shall do what I have threatened if you go on with it. He glanced up at me. It doesn't sound like sheep cowing, does it? No, I was obliged to admit. It does not. July 6th. I am in a fair way to go to jail if things keep on as they have been going, and not only for sheep killing. If we have not had a tragedy here, certainly today there is every indication of it, and with the fatality which has attended me for the past week or so, I have managed to get myself involved in it. Last night a youth named Carraway, sworn in by Star a few days ago as deputy constable, was assigned to the high road behind our property as his beat. He was armed against the sheep killer with a thirty thirty Winchester, which was found this morning in the hedge not far from our gates. Nothing is known of his movements from nine o'clock, when he went on duty, until a few minutes after midnight, when he appeared breathless on the town slip, minus his rifle, and jumping into a motor launch moored at the float, started off into the bay. Peter Geis, an old fisherman, was smoking his pipe on the slip at the time, but Peter is deaf, and although Carraway shouted something, the old man did not hear it. There is, however, an intermediate clue here, for on his way Carraway had run into the Bennett house, and told the night clerk there to awaken Greeno and get him to our float, that the sheep killer had taken a boat there, and was somewhere out on the water. The deputy's idea was probably to drive the fugitive back to the shore, and as there are, due to the marshes, but few landing places there, he seems so far as I can make out to have figured that the unknown would be forced back to our slip. Greeno appears to have lost no time. He threw an overcoat over his pajamas, took his revolver, and commandeering a car in the street was on our pier before Carraway had been on the water ten minutes. And here, with that fatality which has recently pursued me, he found me returning from the float. There are times when misfortune apparently picks up some hapless individual as her victim, and perhaps for the good of his soul, hammers him on this side and on that until he himself begins to think he has deserved it. He is guilty of something, he knows not what. I was a guilty man as I faced Greeno. And yet, the scene must have had its elements of humor. I, rather shaken already with the night air, my teeth rattling, and this ghostly figure suddenly appearing on the runway above me and turning my knees to water, a terror which only changed in quality when this ghost instructed me to put up my hands. But I knew the voice, and I managed as debonair a manner as was possible under the circumstances. Nothing in them but a flashlight, I said. However, if you insist. He seemed to hesitate. Then he laughed a little, not too pleasantly, and came down the runway to me. Out rather late, aren't you, Mr. Porter? He asked. It was my turn to hesitate. I came down to pull the canoe up onto the float, I said finally. Mrs. Porter thought the sea was rising. Sounds quiet enough to me, he retorted, and turning on his flash, he ran it over the surface of the water, which was as still as a mill pond, and onto the canoe, which lay bottom up and still dripping, on the float. It is indicative of the whole situation, I think, that he lighted the flash. He was no longer lurking in the dark, waiting for the motorboat to drive the marauder ashore. That marauder, in the shape of a shivering professor of English literature, slightly unbalanced mentally, was before him. Then he seemed to be listening, and knowing the story this morning, I dare say he was listening for the beat of the motor engine. There was no sound, and this, I imagine, puzzled him, as it is puzzling the entire community today. I am myself not particularly observant, and any testimony I might give would, under the circumstances, be discredited in advance. But my own impression is that there was the sound of an engine from somewhere on the bay as I crossed the lawn, and that it had ceased before I reached the water's edge. Greeno was frankly puzzled. He had, one perceives, a problem on his hands. He wanted Carraway to come in and identify me, for without that identification he was helpless and somewhere out on the water was Curraway, possibly with a stalled engine. He put his hands to his mouth and called, Hi, Bob! he yelled. Bob! But there was no answer, except that Halliday came running out and asked what the trouble was. Greeno was thoroughly irritated. He lapsed into a sulky watchful silence, and offered no objection when I shiveringly suggested I go back to my bed. I left them both there, Halliday preparing to row out and locate the launch if possible, and came back to the lodge. This morning I learned that Carraway's boat was found by Greeno, who had a fast launch with a searchlight, at one o'clock this morning, drifting out with the tide and about two miles from land. It was empty, and no sign of young Carraway was found. 
as it trailed no dory, my mystery has apparently become a tragedy, and I am under suspicion. I have put that down, and sitting back have stared at it. It is true. And suppose what I am expecting at any moment takes place, and Greeno comes into the drive, to confront me with the damnable mass of evidence he has put together, the circle enclosing the triangle, the fact that the sheep killing did not commence until after our arrival at the lodge, the knight Morrison, driving his truckload of produce, saw me on the road, and most of all, with last night. Suppose I tell him the actual fact? that my wife has some curious power, and that in obedience to it she last night roused me from a virtuous sleep to tell me she had clairvoyantly seen a man taking a boat from our float, that I must immediately go down, that there was, she felt, something terribly wrong. Suppose I told him that which is exactly the fact, and also that, once there, I found that Edith had left the canoe in the water, and that I had, like the careful individual I am, drawn it up out of harm's way. Will he believe that? I wonder. Quite aside from my unwillingness to drag Jane into this, particularly as the possessor of a faculty, which she herself only reluctantly reveals even to me, is my conviction that such a story, soberly told, would only increase Greenough's suspicion of my sanity. As if to add to the precariousness of the situation, Halliday himself in all innocence has added another damning factor, gave it indeed to the detective last night. Yesterday, it appears, in repairing the float, he found a new and razor-sharp knife between the top of one of the barrels and the planks which make the flooring. I didn't tell you, Skipper, he says, because I was afraid of alarming you. And of course there might have been some simple explanation. Star might have dropped it during his carpentering. He was first amused and then infuriated by the web which seems to be closing around me. Of course they can't do anything, he says, unless they catch you in the act. But the unconscious humor of that statement set me laughing, and after a moment he saw it and grinned sheepishly. You know what I mean, he said, and in one way if you can stand it it's not a bad thing. Pressed for an explanation, it appears that he had been thinking of going after the reward himself, and that this matter of Carraway has decided him. Reward or no reward, he said quietly. I've had a bit of training. They put me in the intelligence in Germany during the occupation, and of course the way to catch a criminal is to keep him from knowing who's after him. Then again, if he learns the police are watching you, and he may, he's watching them, you know. It may make him a bit reckless. You could never tell. But he has a third reason, although he has not mentioned it. He is chivalrously determined to protect me, and through me, Edith. End of section 5.